confused with non-linear programming or neuro-linguistic programming, which, like natural language processing, all are shortened to NLP. So just a little thing to look out for. Um, today we have three Pride in Manchester organisers. got myself, Jennifer Stark, uh, with a past in neuroscience, computational journalism and data science and engineering, and John Carney, starting off in wheat genetics and current director of data science. At PDFTA, hello. <laughs> At PDFTA. And our new organiser, Sean Hyde, who has a background in biochemistry and is currently a senior insights analyst and working on a master's science in data analytics. Welcome, Sean. Hello. Uh, right, so today we're talking about NLP, specifically, well, I mean, what kinds of NLP are there? What kinds? I feel like it's almost an, um, a never-ending field, and, uh, <laughs> which is intentionally vague, but the field of NLP vastly predates, um, well, I think it predates um, machine learning. Yeah, because yeah, it's all kinds of trying to understand the language and how it's used, and then it's bleeding into how we can use um, you know, computers to understand language, and most recently, um, machine learning and AI and all these cool techniques. Yeah, like Alexa. Like Alexa. Or Siri or other products that are out there. Yeah, I mean, machine translation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, text classification, topping modeling, sentiment analysis, all sorts. Yeah, so uh, one example of text classification um, where you're looking at... So text classification is classifying a piece of text into bucket one or bucket two, mm. um, if it's a binary classification. So an example of that would be spam detection. Is this spam, bucket one, or is it not, bucket two? Uh, so what kind of, what might that involve? Well, spam detection, sure. I mean, I guess if you're approaching it as, as, um, as a simple binary classification, you're looking at, um, similar to regular binary classification, a class label, um, and a set of features. Now, obviously, the big difference between um, classification for you know standard classification and um, natural language classification would be that you get all of your features from the language itself, or from a document in the language itself, as opposed to getting features from a naturally occurring process. Not to imply language is unnatural. We're not not ready for that level of hot take on this podcast yet. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, a very simple version would be to have labeled data set, some labeled spam, some labeled not spam, and uh, you like there's a difference between the kinds of words used in spam emails and the kinds of words used in real emails. Um, differences in spelling errors, differences in how people are addressed or signed off, so that kind of thing. So does this... If a piece of text has lots of these errors, you might say that's spam. Mm. Um, but that's a very, very simplified version of it. Um, before you mentioned, John, topic modeling as well. Uh, have you done? Oh, no. Uh, to be very um, brief on topic modeling, 
it's looking at articles and documents and um, understanding uh, the topics that are contained in that document. So you might have a document on, so you may have a news article and um, your topic model might determine that it's a news article, first it's a news article and then it's about a, a sports event, for example. Um, so then you can use topic modeling to um, separate out a ton of documents into their various topics. So, I mean, for something like that, would would a technique like part of speech tagging be used? So, understanding based on a series of sentences in an article, which um, kind of which words are adjective, which uh, which words are verbs, which words are subjects, and stuff like that to start building out the corpus um, to learn from. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, I think so. I think I'm pretty sure I've done a topic model before, but very briefly and very long time ago. But yeah, it would pick out sort of names of people, names of places and events, um, very in a very basic level, uh, and then it would say you know, if, it's, if it's lots of mentions of Man City, it's a topic. Man City is a topic. Mm. Um, so yeah, and then there's um, probably the most commonly used or the most easily. Mm, the one most used in introductory tutorials to NLP would be sentiment analysis, I think. Uh, have you done sentiment analysis? I think way back in the past I may have done a little bit of uh, sentiment analysis um, in Python, trying to understand the sentiment of customer complaints to our complaints department before um, at an e-commerce place I used to work. Um, I would put it down as a qualified success. Oh, really? Uh, Qualified? Uh, yes, which is to say it wasn't a tremendously transformative um, project, but there was some value in that um, people, it, the stakeholders were able to understand different proportions of messages uh, and kind of were able to flag it with some of the more severe sentiments. We didn't, I don't think it was a a simple binary sentiment analysis. I think we had a, a few different um, classes of sentiment in there. Right. Um, but this is going back a couple of years. Yeah. So when you say binary, so you're looking at so sentiment. Sentiment in like the dictionary terms is about um, talking about how someone's feelings mm. or attitudes to something might be, which is quite broad. Um, so. Uh, yeah, an attitude towards something, a mental feeling, an emotion, um, or or a thought about something. So it's quite quite general. Yeah. Um, whereas in the way we apply that, we tend to apply that in natural language processing is to say more talking about um, if something's positive, negative, or neutral. So. We tend to think of it in terms of polarity of opinion, mm. or polarity of the statement made, or the valence of the feeling. So the valence, good yeah, word. Yeah, um, yeah. So whether it's positive, I love that. That was great. This is wonderful. If something's negative, so I hate that. That's awful. Terrible things. Or just neutral. So it's just making a statement that has no uh, positive or negative sentiment. Um, so that was, I went to this place, would be a neutral statement. I find it, I mean, entertaining, certainly the concept, you mentioned Man City. Um, certainly I've heard uh, football fans come away from City games, and other sports teams, mm. other sports teams are available, coming away saying, that was a football game. And that is certainly not a positive emotion. <laughs> but while it may seem like uh, a neutral 
Oh, see, that even with the so much in the tone, doesn't yeah. it? Like, it, how was it said? If it was written down, how would it be written down to reflect the way they said it? Yeah, yeah. And this is just one of the issues, um, the many, many issues with language. There, yeah, so many I mean, we, we struggle enough with language trying to get sarcasm across in text form, let alone a machine understanding sarcasm. Yeah, yeah, sarcasm, I think, is one of the hardest things. I'm not sure if it even has it down yet with even most... Uh, sophisticated language models. Sarcasm is very, very hard. Um, lots of things are hard. Lang natural language processing, sentiment analysis or otherwise, is still very, very hard. Um, so, I mean, where, if it's so popular, where is it used? I mean, it's used in loads of applications that we probably didn't even think of, but in terms of sentiment only. Um, the, the few that I know about uh, is comment moderation. So if you think, I mean, there's two two levels to this, I suppose. One is the, the common thought, when people think talk about comment moderation, it's removing uh, comments that you, you don't want on your in your thread. Hmm. So um, abusive or negative comments um, might be detected automatically. Um, it saves your moderators from reading horrible things as well. Um, and the, the quicker they can be flagged or taken down, the, the better. Um, then there's uh, one other application is detecting and promoting comments that reflect a change in mood. So perhaps people are writing, like, are following an event, and they want to always have the, the they want to be notified of when when the tone of messages changes from positive to negative or vice versa and they want to be flagged and so that's one way to use sentiment in that um, or identifying valuable comments I suppose that's similar to the one above so they want to there's like a value in the negative or a mm. value in the positive and they want to know when it changes or when it, like to get the most positive like maybe for a marketing campaign you want to use a tweet or something as a as a showcase tweet on your web page or on a poster so it'd be, you know, if you can find the, the message with the highest positive score or the, a bunch of messages with the highest positive score you could use those Forcefly is a data science driven provider of talent analytics solutions with offices in Manchester and Liverpool their data scientists code and python every day if you love data and have a natural curiosity to dive into a data set Get in touch with Horsefly or reach out to Pi Data Manchester and we can pass you on. Check out their website in the show notes. Without the support of Horsefly Analytics, as well as LabLabel for hosting our recording today, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. So, yeah, an awful lot of large organisations try and do similar things. So when there are marketing campaigns, um, they try and track the mood of their um, ideal or the, their intended audience, or perhaps different segments of their intended audience, of their audience, to understand how they may view the company itself. So mm. tracking over time, say before Christmas, um, what how people feel about a big brand, say a big shoe company, um, as they as it comes over Black Friday um, after Thanksgiving, uh, but before big uh, the big marketing campaigns have been released, um, tracking how sentiment changes towards the brand and the campaign itself and different products because there's lots of different dimensions you can go down there mm. um, and that can allow companies have to take lots of different styles of actions you know obviously some can be quite quite high level at the board level some can be taking um more concrete actions about how to deliver the marketing campaign and stuff like that so 
I've definitely read about uh, different people who've used that. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, and also, um, I guess similar to that is is triaging complaints. So mm-hmm. I've read about people doing studies and, and finding that the most abuse, the most the more abusive messages on Twitter to a company about a product get addressed first. So which goes against a lot of people's normal writing style, normal complaint style. Like you, you don't want to come across as angry necessarily, or you might not be in a very sweary in your normal life, but if you put some swear words in your tweet message complaining about something, it might be addressed faster. Yeah. Um, just not saying that's an absolute fact, check it out yourself if it, uh, to, to see if you can find it. Please don't experiment. Uh, yeah. That's also not a tip to anyone. No, no, please no, not a tip. Please be nice. People have to deal with a lot. Um, but, but yeah. So, I mean, that does introduce the concept of a very unfortunate feedback loop, doesn't it? Yes. Where um, you're directly rewarded by being more and more unpleasant, yeah. um, vitriolic and hate-filled because exactly of how the um, the algorithms can be, how the algorithms work and how they're then used by the company. Because, of course, the company doesn't want to be tagged in the comments of some nut job. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, as that can then be retweeted and can become a, a viral story in and of itself. Yeah. So the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the impetus, the benefits, then is to try and address that as soon as possible. But right. obviously you don't want to be treating people who are treating others badly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's something that we don't often think about in machine learning, isn't it? That, that the algorithms that we're creating to address an issue and can end up shaping the behavior in, mm. in people. So there is, there is a feedback loop. Um, that's not to anyone's benefit necessarily. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even say that the algorithm itself, although obviously it, I think it's more how the algorithm's used yeah, and yeah. understanding the benefits yeah, yeah, of, of it. Course, yeah, like how it's yeah, implementing the algorithm causes this feedback. Mm. Yeah, so we've got to think about that. Because I mean, if we decided that if anyone was past a threshold of, I don't know, 95 on being a very impolite, terrible person, mm. we could say, okay, we're just not going to address you. You've been a naughty person, you can sit there quietly. Yes. Um, yeah. We should have a very different feedback loop. Yeah. And would have all the negative um, issues with it as well. Uh, but th- there is no no magic solution to these things, I guess. It, yeah, it's complicated. It yeah, always it's... is. Um, so if we were to um, apply sentiment analysis to understanding how a brand like your own brand might compete with other brands in the same space um how do you go about it yeah i think that's a really interesting question and it's always useful to have this in the context of a real problem isn't it rather than just you know imdb um examples well there's yeah the classic examples imdb IMDb movie ratings um because it's a free data set, mm. loads of people have done it, and it's easy to rate how you've done against the billions of others who've done the same thing. It's important to have a benchmark. It is important to have a benchmark. Um, but today we're not going to do that. We're going to look at how how our fictional company rates compared with other fictional companies in the same space. Um, so typical steps for sentiment analysis, or any analysis you do really, is to look at your data. Um, that's the first thing you should do no matter what your project is. Um, I find 
it's rarely exactly as you expect it to be. There's mm. always weird edge cases or just a lot of content that you're not expecting, especially with speech or, or text. Yeah. Um, and maybe less. Maybe there'll be fewer surprises if you're looking at professional writing, so articles or documents. Um, but when you're looking at social media comments, tweets, Facebook comments, the way people write is not very standardized and people express themselves yeah. a lot in different ways. So looking at your data gives you a much better idea of the kinds of problems you need to anticipate in the rest of your analysis and how you do your pre-process and how you do your cleaning up of the data. Yeah, I feel like one of the one of the things that I found most difficult um, with this step, specifically with natural language processing, as opposed to um, or, you know other, other types of machine learning, is when you're trying to look at data, it, look at the, your data. It's hard to um, look at aggregations to make sure they fit within your assumptions because how do you aggregate you know thousands of documents without reading them and maybe you're reading them and you know what's the point? <laughs> um, there's only so much time in the day, so it's very hard trying to do that and the only way I found is to try and take random samples and mm -hmm. take the time and understand kind of build a very loose understanding in my mind of how it's going because like you say if you're um, analyzing you know professional writing documents you know articles from newspapers you're much more likely to have structured formal English if you're reading tweets on Twitter you'd be lucky to have them even be recognized as English sometimes assuming they are actually in so intended for English language recipients, and then again, that's another um, area of complexity. Sometimes you get uh, tweets written in foreign languages, yeah, or, or other languages, I should say, um, that aren't just English. And I think that it's having spoken to some of our attendees at uh, Pydate Manchester, they're doing some really exciting work in using natural language processing in other in other languages and trying to um, take across different techniques. But that's a tangent, so I'm not going to go down that road too soon. No, it's all relevant though. I mean, there's I'm, every time I spend time to, to look at my data before I analyse, or, well, oftentimes I get too excited and dive into analysis, finally getting some weird outputs with my just initial uh, cleaning up stages, and then I go back and look at the data and think, oh, that's why... I was expecting that in there. So um, text in different languages is one of those things. And it's, it just um, highlights your own biases. You know, I'm expecting all, all things in English and there there are some comments in Spanish. And I'm like, well, that's my fault. I should have anticipated that. I should mm. have, um, you know, assuming assumption is bad. You know, you can't really assume what you're going to get. So again, looking at the data is really important. Um, then very typical steps in most NLP, no matter what you're using it, no matter what um, technique you're going to be applying to it, is tokenizing or tokenization. And all that is, is splitting up the text into each of their individual words. Um, so if you've got a single string, so you've got uh, a Python string of, of words, so like all the words are in one string, a tokenized sentence would be each string, each word being its own string. So you might end up with a list, like a Python list, and each word in that list is, is separate. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's quite easy to 
Um, well, I, I found it quite easy to understand conceptually, as you've then got a list of strings, and you can then use that list of strings, say, to represent an entire document or an entire sentence, and apply different pre different processing steps on each item of sentence. Um, and uh, sorry, each element in the list, which is essentially each word in the sentence. So it, it might be something as simple as um, lowercasing um, each word, or removing uh, extraneous spaces, or um, hyphenated words, or making sure that all of the words are expected within your dictionary. Um, and th that's not necessarily a common step, but if you're expecting all English words and you've got some things that you think may be words but aren't recognised in a dictionary, that's some, certainly um, something to consider. And I suppose that takes us um, towards uh, towards uh, lemmatizing and stemming. Yes, well, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so lemmatizing and stemming is a way to make your words, to reduce the dimensionality of your words. So you might have several words in your corpus or in your sentence that are that have the same root. So you might have walk, walking, walked, um, walks. And you wouldn't necessarily want to process them as if they are completely different words. So all those different variations on the same word is really just taking up space. So um, what limitization and stemming does is to reduce words down to their um, more generalizable form. Um, but they, they are slightly different. Uh, most of the time, I feel like Right, tutorials don't really tell you, if, if, if you follow a sentiment analysis tutorial, they'll often use one or the other, so stemming or limitization, um, but don't really explain why. Um, so I did have to look up what the differences were. I think we all, did, we all, we all looked at that, didn't well, we? I should have looked at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all didn't, because it, because it isn't, it's, unless you're um, studying linguistics, you're not necessarily going to know what just just know what these are um so so i had to look it up and found so that stanford nlp is a long-standing well-established um research lab i guess that look that uh, develop linguistic processing models um and do a lot of nlp research and they describe <laughs> they describe on, on their website the difference between stemming and limitization. So it's something that is definitely important to know. And they say um, they say stemming usually refers to a crude heuristic process that chops off the ends of words in the hope of achieving this goal correctly most of the time, that goal of making things uh, more general, generalizable. And often includes the removal of der derivational affixes. Limitization usually refers to doing things properly with the use of a vocabulary and morphological analysis of words, normally aiming to remove inflectional endings only and to return a base, the base or dictionary form of the word, which is known as the lemma. The way I think of it, based on my GCSE English language, is going from the conjugation of different words. So, for example, if we want to conjugate play, it would be I play, I played, I am playing, I played. 
Um, whereas if we want to remove the word ending, lemmatization will uh, stemming would just chop off the end bit. Mm. Whereas lemmatization would understand that play is the appropriate verb, mm. and that's relatively simple for a regular a regular verb, which right. I think is a technical term. Yeah. Whereas irregular words it's that are irregularly conjugated, yeah, there's lots. It can be way more complicated in terms yeah. of how you deconjugate them, which is not a technical term. Yeah, so I am, I was, that would be an irregular. Yeah. Or even like, one letter from your example, I'm paying, I'm paid, I'm paid. Like it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's an irregularly conjugated verb. Yeah, and which I believe English has an awful lot of them. Yeah, so in, that, in those cases, to get to be, to do that better, you'd want to choose limitization rather than stemming. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, I'm glad that Stanford agree with me on this point. Yes, they have well-established opinions, um, as they should. <laughs> yeah. Presumably when it comes to stuff like slang and people abbreviating words, mm. that is entirely dependent on your corpus as to how well it stems or limitizes it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you're dealing with tweets that are... Not irregularly um, conjugated, but don't have actual words in them. Uh, thinking about like you know text speak and link speak and stuff like that that aren't regularly that aren't regular words. Yeah, I don't I don't know how he, how he would go about trying to appropriately tokenize and stem or limitize them. Yeah, unless you made it your own dictionary. Yeah, and I think that's the way of doing it. You try and have to work around and figure out. The, not the clean way of doing it, but the mm. best way available to you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so for example, if you had... Uh, you'd have a, di- a dictionary of key-value pairs where um, the key would be the slang version or the colloquial version of a word and the value would be um, the more standardised way of writing it. So then you'd go through your text, applying this dictionary to your text, so it would change all the slang that you are aware of from its slang version to a standardized version, and then you'd apply the limitization step. That involves a lot of uh, a lot of work, a lot of work, and a lot of knowledge on your corpus that you're trying to analyze. Um, so if you're a linguist of some kind, um, that might be. You know, you might get a more accurate job out of it, but then it's not very scalable. No, I mean, you'd have to go through your entire corpus to make sure each of your words are in your dictionary. Yeah, or a good amount of them, yeah. 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 And have rules for what to do if a particular token wasn't found. I mean, there are ways of doing it, and you don't have to be perfect. Mm. You can make the best of the situation, but it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. There's a big thank you to all the corpuses that are out there. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. yeah, lots of great corpuses. Um, another step that's very common no matter what you're doing usually is stop word removal. So a stop word is um, the words that don't really mean much. So the, and, it, but. Uh, there's a whole, this is also um, in, in the different NLP libraries that are available, they, are, they usually come with a, um, a list of words that are stop words. So you can do 
you know, your library dot stop words and it will print out your stop words for you and then you can get a good look at what they are. Um, but they're normally considered words that don't add anything of value to the sentence. Hmm. Anything of meaning. Right. Meaning, yeah. Although I've looked at these dictionary of stop, uh, list of stop words and I'm looking at some of them and think, surely that has meaning. So, I don't know. I but, think they depend on the approach that you take with modelling it. Well, I mean, I'm just like saying like the standard list no, of no, stop no, words I, I contains agree. I think, I... a lot of words that I would have thought of meaning. Um, but you can, you, with these libraries, you can usually you know, append words to the stop word list. Uh, so you can make it, you can mould it to your own purpose. Uh, so it's not the be all end all, but it's a good place to start. Mm. Um, and then parts of speech tagging. So you can, uh, you know, put, make your, usually this is part of your library as well, your NLP library, that will have a, a parts of speech, um, function, tagging function, which will go through your text and add, you know, ta tag onto each token. So now it's tokenized, it will then, um, uh, tag each token <laughs> with what kind of, what part of speech it is. So if it's an adverb, a noun, a verb, um, an adjective, um, and that can be really, really useful for your, for your work later on. So it, it, I think then you'd do your parts of speech tagging before you do your stop word removal because the, the structure of the sentence will impact the part of speech that each word is, if that makes sense. Mm. But yes, yeah, certainly punctuation affects the context of language, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So order can be really, really important. And it's good to really consider the order that you're doing things um, against the goal that you're trying to achieve. Yeah, which I think brings us to a really useful point that we've been talking about all the different steps and this is all just pre-processing of how yeah. we'd go about trying to build a, a, a feature set from our corpus mm. that we can use in the binary classification, or, you know, a classification um, approach. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, so some less typical steps would be pattern matching. So if you've got a particular phrase that you're expecting or looking for that's not a single word, it's like two words or a couple of words. Um, so if we're doing our, um, um, how our company compares with other companies analogy, we might be looking for pairs or sets of words that occur around our company name. And maybe our company name is two words or more. Hmm. Um, so we might have our company name as a phrase um, or a or a noun phrase. Um, can you give any other examples of where we might need pattern matching? I'm not familiar with pattern matching. Oh, it's literally just like a, a regex. So oh, okay. look for two words or three words or like this exact phrase, like iPhone 11 Pro, which is you know separate, yeah. but they don't make sense separately. You you need to keep them together mm -hmm. to have a whole product name. Okay. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's a good application of pattern matching as well, yeah. Um yeah, and then uh, another very useful step would be word vectors or word embeddings that can capture some nuance better than than trying to capture them your, yourselves really. So an example of um, 
So say there's a lot of colloquial sentence structure or words or phrases that are not standard. And so you could, um, as we were talking about before, construct your own dictionary to map colloquial versions onto standard versions. Well, instead you could you could train a word in word embedding to learn those um, relationships for you. So you don't have to say whether this phrase or this spelling is a posit has a positive valence or a negative valence because it, it can be mapped to other similar words that also have a positive valence or whatnot. Yeah. So, because so, the thing is, with, with some with a lot of uh, written like social media text. Um, you can have things written with purposeful typos or with the at sign replacing the A or um, really contracted spellings <laughs> or just really incorrect spellings to mm. emphasize um, what they're trying to say. And so it can be impossible to map all those yourself. So in that, those cases, maybe a word embedding would be much more efficient for doing that. Yeah, I think a word embedding is kind of a, is a very different approach to understanding language than mm. a lot of the other techniques we've spoken about before, um, up, up to this point. All the other all the other techniques that we've spoken about, I think, come from trying to understand language from a generic, from a baseline. We want to understand language, not we want to represent language to a machine. Whereas natural language, um, sorry, whereas word uh, word vectors try to understand from context uh, they, they take this um the base assumption that words that appear in similar contexts have similar meaning mm. so from that just trying to understand which words and how they appear and how they appear together what they mean and representing each word as a vector um in a word yeah, in a word vector space so you've got a, um, a dense vector embedding, um, which you can then use to relate to how similar it is to other things. If you're trying to understand the concept of what a dense embedding is, it's I find it useful to contrast to um, a sparse embedding, which would be kind of one-hot encoding. So if we've got um, a large document, a large set of documents, and we've got a million words, a million unique words that occur in there, most of them only occur once. If we create a one-hot encoding, then we've got an array of um, one million columns, I suppose, and each word will then have a one in each. Uh, they'll, they'll be very sparse. There'll be a one, a single one uh, in each row, which is an almost as sparse as you can get to try and um, represent what, how each word means, or what each word means, rather than having it as such a sparse embedding. We'd have a very, very dense embedding that might be 300 length. Um, so that's the length that um, was used in the words of like paper by Miklov, um, when they first introduced it and what Google have used, um, which obviously is much easier to deal with and it incorporates much more information. That's a little rant there for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that was, it made sense to me. Um, so yeah, so with one part encoding, there's no encoding of relationship between the words yeah. in the array. There's just a word present or absent. Um, whereas with a, a vector, there's a value for each word in each column 
as to how it relates to the other words. Yeah, and the really cool thing is you can then say, you can measure the distance between two vectors and understand how similar two words are. Mm. And mathematically as well. Yes, exactly. So, and that, that means you can subtract or add and find relationships. Yes. Um, and also, you can represent, you can then use the features, um, describe, you can aggregate uh, word embeddings, for example, all the words in a particular document via mean or some, uh, something else, um, and then use those features as the base features of your classification problem. Hmm. So you kind of transform from an NL, NLP style um, problem into a regular tabular um, classification problem. Right. Kafka Associates is a technology recruitment company with offices in Leeds, Manchester and Edinburgh, covering all things tech, but with an experienced team focusing on data science in the Northwest. They're good at what they do. They're one of those rare companies that understand what their candidates do. Kafka sponsors PyData Manchester, PyData Edinburgh, Mangamel, Scottamel. Check out their website in the show notes or find them on Twitter at Kafka Recruit. NLP can get really uh, complicated, well, sentiment analysis can get complicated very fast. Um, but what's great about it is that you can come into sentiment analysis as a beginner, into a beginner of NLP and a beginner of machine learning. And you can also, there's plenty of work to do if you're more experienced in NLP and sentiment analysis or do something really complex with complex corpus of text and um, with, with a complex approach like word embeddings. So there's a whole range there that you can get your teeth stuck into. Um, there's a whole range of tools as well. So I think one of the earliest tools available in Python was NLTK or Natural Language Toolkit. Um, and I think a lot of other libraries out there are built on top of NLTK to make as like an API to make it more um, accessible to use. One of those being TextBlob, which I used quite early on. I started mm. trying to use NLTK when I was really, really, really new into Python and I just could not understand how to use it because I think the documentation of NLTK was, was you know, assumed to already had a really good understanding of both how Python works and how documentation works. And because I didn't have a good understanding of either, or how NLP works, yeah. uh, then I just had no, it was just very, um, I couldn't get into it, I couldn't understand how to use it, um, or what I was even trying to achieve. So TextBlob is a nice way to, to get over some of those hurdles, I think. TextBlob has really, text really great documentation, um, and, and, it, and it groups up some of the more routine steps into more easily execute, executable um, Python commands. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I had a very similar experience. Oh, did getting, you? Yeah, it, 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 I started trying to do my first um, NLP project, just just learning no real value in it. But it was so NLTK is such a fantastic resource, but it's very hard to understand if you're just coming into Python or you're just coming into natural language processing. Mm. Whereas TextBlog made an awful lot of things much easier. It was much easier to go from I'm just starting to this is yeah. this is how we can deliver some value. Yeah, I feel like the uh, analogy would be NLTK is like Matplotlib in that it breaks everything yeah. down into the tiny tiny steps, which is great if you want to have fine control over everything. From the start, but if you're not familiar, you need to want to like dive into the to the um, sentiment analysis or whatever analysis you're trying to do. It's probably not the 
the thing for you. But I think most of the other tools are built on top of NLTK, so it's an essential library for sure. Yeah. Um, another really cool library is Spacey or Spacey, S P A C Y. Mm. That's um, also got a lot of really cool features that make it much easier to execute um, what you want to do. Um, I feel like that's been really popular recently as well, the past couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it's been around for about maybe, maybe five years now. Um, four or five years, maybe more. Uh, but yeah, that's, that documentation is really excellent. Um, and also, another tool I came in, I've discovered recently is a tool that my, uh, that the team I'm currently working in have used for some time, um, that I wasn't aware of it before. It's called VADER, V-A-D-E-R, Sentiment for Social Media Comment Sentiment Analysis. And what makes it, um, particularly interesting is that it's made specifically for social media text. So you remember what we were talking about earlier where we were saying how um, you know, standard written text like articles and reports are much different from comments uh, or tweets. And so a lot of those differences are addressed with this VADA sentiment analysis tool. For example, um, they have taken into consideration how um, how some statements can be negated by a word, like good is positive, but it might be negated by isn't or aren't. Yeah. Um, or, <laughs> uh, so, so that takes into account. That's quite a simple thing to take care of, but it goes beyond that um, by also looking at... Um, so, so one of the typical steps that we did not talk about today is lowercasing everything. But if you're thinking about how people write in comments, capitalization is really, really important. You know, they're going to be shouting something or it's, it's used for emphasis. Yeah. So rather than removing all that and like normalizing the text at all lowercase um, to make your limitization and your standardization of the language easier, this Vader tool takes into account capitalization of words. Um, so um, <clears throat> so it, it's able to adjust the, the sentiment score based on whether it's all caps or or lots of in, lots of words in caps. Um, it also looks at um, uh, how how people boost um, something with uh, like a, a booster word. So we can adjust the um, sentiment based on that. It takes into account emojis. So, oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't understand emojis. <laughs> um, so it takes into account a lot of things that then it uses to to modify the, the basic standard sentiment score. Mm. Um, so it's able to and using uh, idioms. Um, so its documentation is pretty nice as well, um, and gives you examples of. Um, Different scores based on this set of sentences that take that use emojis and capitalization and fifty exclamation marks versus the exact same sentence with two exclamation marks, so it, it will score that differently as well. So it's really, really cool. Um, I'm really into it. It's currently still um, contributed to, so it's an active repository that's in 
GitHub and you can check it out. It sounds really powerful. Yeah, it's a really good idea. Uh, thank you to the uh, people who have made that. Definitely in the show notes. Um, and then you've got um, uh, an R package, because we love R. Yes. Um, there's an R package called Sentiment Analysis, which is very well named. Um, I can't see anything beyond that because I've not used it, but it looks pretty um, comprehensive. Yeah, I mean, R's got, I, I know from speaking to other people at least, um, by reputation, R's definitely got a lot of really strong natural language processing tools. Yeah. Um, and then if you're not sure about diving into R or Python code, then there's uh, Google NLP API um, is uh, available to, to play around with on, on, their, uh, on their website. So you can go to the NLP API website and you can stick into their example um, text box, uh, an example phrase or sentence that you want to look at and it will analyze it and, and tell you what it thinks of it. Hmm. So you can sort of explore the kinds of things that Google's an API can do. Um, and so Zero has something quite similar where you can do sort of English positive, English negative, and also Spanish positive, Spanish negative. So it's quite fun. Um, and then Amazon Web Services have a, have a free tier which you can do something like five million characters within the free tier. So oh. it's not too bad. It's it an odd way of measuring. <laughs> it is an odd way of measuring, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you'd think it'd be word. Based, not character -based. I would have thought so, or document or sentence or yeah. book character, I suppose. I'm sure they've got their reasons. Yeah, I mean, I know the Google API, if you were going to use it you know, for business, um, it does its API charging rates based on the individual text. So if you're going to look at comments, it would be each comment. Sure. Or each, if you're going to look at documents, it would be each document up to a certain size, and then it splits it up into um, batches if it's a really big document. Um, so that makes sense. But characters yeah. is an odd. Mm. Odd, yeah. AWS fun. I love it. Yeah. Um, so if you were going to, if you're interested in having a go with code, uh, Kaggle does have a course. They have got a new, a whole new thing now on the website for courses. Um, and one of those courses, I think it's right at the end of the course list, is on NLP. There's no sentiment in there as far as I can see, but um, it's, I think it's a really good. Um, quick, it's like a quick start, I think. Quick start in, in analysis, NLP using Spacey, I think, is their main library. But yeah, that's in Python. Um, Medium always has, there's always tons of tutorials you can find on Medium. Yeah, we've got a couple to link you to specifically. Yeah, there'll be some links in the show notes. Um, and yeah, as I said before, Spacey has excellent documentation which will help you get started if you were to use that. Yeah. Well, I think that's all we've got time for today. Um, NLP is always one of my favourite topics. Uh, I can't wait till I get another project to do with it. Um, yeah, hope you guys find this useful. Yeah, um, definitely make sure you can get in contact with us on Twitter um, at PyData for MCR. If um, you've got any questions or comments or whatever. Um, yeah, we'd love to know what you think. Yeah, all about that positivity. I want to see <laughs> positive sentiments. Brilliant. All right. So, until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.